0: Welcome to the Master of Divinity podcast. We're continuing our look at pastoral care, this time exploring pastoral care in the Bible. There are more than a few passages to share, and I'll add them, or most of them, to the website to allow you to read them on your own. The website is p2.ca slash podcast. Thank you for joining me. I begin this episode with four scripture sentences found at the beginning of Howard Kleinbell's landmark book, Basic Types of Pastoral Care and Counseling. Where there is no guidance, a people falls. In the abundance of counselors, there is safety. That's from Proverbs 11. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Isaiah 9. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. John 10, and be transformed by the renewal of your mind, Paul writing in Romans 12. You'll recall that last week we began with a working definition of our topic. Pastoral care is the means by which the church attends to the healing, sustaining, guiding, and reconciling ministry of Jesus Christ. As a church, we are called to trust the words of the Wonderful Counselor. He came to give us abundant life and to renew our hearts and minds through His love, to counsel and embrace counselors, and to sustain each other through Christ. If I was going to add another familiar scripture sentence to this list, it would be 2 Corinthians 5.17. Anyone in Christ is a new creation. Former things have passed away, and behold, new things have come. These words were a regular part of worship for me, one of the scripture sentences I would frequently use as the assurance of pardon after the confession. I took the liberty of transliterating the verse thus, Anyone in Christ is a new creation. The past is done, and new life has come. I like things to rhyme. The point, to my mind, is accepting the forgiveness that is extended to each of us through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Another assurance I frequently used uh, was the first couple of sentences from William Countryman's excellent book, Good News of Jesus. To quote, What God says to you in Jesus is this, You are forgiven. Nothing more, nothing less. This is the message Jesus spoke and lived. So, the beginning of pastoral care is accepting that you are a child of God and a redeemed sinner, a little less than angels, Hebrews 2, and earthen vessels, 2 Corinthians 4, given to brokenness. Indeed, the psalmist says, I am become like a broken pot, Psalm 31. Next week, when we're looking at models of pastoral care, we'll meet the great Henry Nowen and his concept of the wounded healer. For now, it is enough to say that anyone who gives care or receives care must accept that they are a cracked pot. We haven't had uh, a pause for questions lately, so if you wish, uh, pause the tape and consider this question. Do you think we tend more to little less than angels or more to broken vessels. You could pause now. Moving out from our essential nature, we now look at our nature in context. In many ways, this is the real heart of pastoral care. Healing, sustaining, guiding, and reconciling all happen with others, either between us and our family and friends, or in a community of faith, or all of the above. Like a life of faith, we can practice in solitude for a time, but the context is always other believers. Within the early church, we find a group of active believers emerge beyond the twelve disciples. They are given unique roles and a variety of names to go with these roles, and much of their ministry falls under the broad category of pastoral care we meet some of them in Acts chapter 6. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables, Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Setting aside the obvious truth that church conflict is as old as the church itself, uh, we see a new group emerging. We'll call them the elders of the church. They do not do the work of apostles spreading the word. Rather, they care for the widows who belong to the nascent church. The daily distribution of food is part of that early mandate to hold everything in common, and a new group must manage this task. Of course, these elders quickly become the backbone of the church. The apostles have been given the task of taking the faith to the nations, and those formed into congregations must sustain and grow the churches founded by the likes of Peter and Paul. Paul himself recognizes this when he blesses the elders at Ephesus, saying, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. That's from Acts chapter 20. So the stakes are high. The future of the church depends on the quality of these shepherds. The ministry of sustaining the church has a life-and-death quality to it. Our Evangelical brothers and sisters are fond of saying that the Christian church is never more than one generation away from extinction, and for the elders at Ephesus, this is true. But Paul's warning, as harsh as it is, still uses the pastoral language of the shepherd tending the flock. So a question. Do you agree that we are never more than one generation from extinction as a church, Uh, Pause the tape if you wish. Over time, the instructions to elders becomes more specific. We get this from uh, James chapter 5. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other, so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. We begin to see a more complete description of both the Christian hope in prayer and the office of elder. Those who deliver pastoral care tend to the troubled, the sick, and the sinful, and even the joyful. The active life of the community takes shape in the aptly called pastoral epistles found in the New Testament. And note the specificity. Call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. There's an on-call function maintained by these elders. They need to be ready to pray, and they undertake the ritual role of anointing the sick in the name of the Lord. Thinking back to last time and the Anglo-Saxon church, the task is unchanged in a thousand years as it remains unchanged today. Finally, for this section, the author of Hebrews adds even more to the role of elder. And this would make sense, given that Hebrews is among the last books of the New Testament written. There is diversity in the role, but the underlying task of care remains the same. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. That's from Hebrews 13. So the elders are feeding widows, thwarting savage wolves, visiting, praying, anointing, welcoming the stranger, visiting prisoners, and comforting the persecuted? If idleness is the devil's workshop, elders of the church have nothing to worry about in this time. I want to move now from definitions of pastoral care found in Scripture to specific examples. As we look to each of these two examples, uh, we'll begin to add some theory to the mix. Our look at Theory will be more comprehensive next time, but there's no time like the present to renew our minds, according to St. Paul. So we're going to travel back in time to the wilderness near Mount Sinai. There, in the camp, the Israelites are adjusting to this new life of freedom. Inevitably, disputes arise between members of the community, and Moses must act as judge. So enter Jethro. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, What is this you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses answered him, Because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it's brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and laws. Then Moses' father-in-law replied, What you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me, and I will give you some advice, and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to Him. Teach them the decrees and laws, and show them the way to live and the duties they are to perform but select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and anoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you, the simple cases they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this, and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain, and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. What we are witnessing is not only the birth of the idea of a Supreme Court, but also the beginning of the period of the Judges. Soon Moses will pass and the Israelites will find themselves in the land, a land they must govern. Jethro's concept of officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens will provide some order in the promised land. So how is it pastoral care? Turning to Howard Kleinbell, uh, this definition of pastoral care. Pastoral counseling is the utilization of a variety of healing methods to help people handle their problems and crises more growthfully, and thus experience healing of their brokenness. To build a case for Jethro's ministry to his son-in-law, let's recap the story of poor Moses. Separated from his kin compelled to murder while witnessing the abuse of a slave, a system he participated in for years, sent into exile, compelled by God to return, leads one of history's great duels, leads a troublesome band of former slaves through the wilderness, endures their cries for water, food, and God knows what else, and now he deals with their disputes from morning till night. So Moses is clearly burned out, likely traumatized, and forced to adjudicate between the very people who have been tormenting him uh, with their endless demands and disputes. He needs help, and Jethro does the unlikely. He challenges the great liberator to step out of the role he seems to have largely assigned to himself and find a new way. His pastoral counselor and father-in-law challenges him to grow and, we assume, to take some time to heal. If counseling is about finding a way to see your situation in a different light, then Moses has received effective care. So next I want to leap ahead a few centuries and locate us on the road from Gaza to Jerusalem and one of the most remarkable interactions found in Scripture. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but he went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns, until he reached Caesarea. That's from Acts chapter 8. You will recall from last time that we described pastoral care through three sacraments, communion, anointing the sick, and confession. Now I'm about to add a fourth to the list, pastoral care through the gift of baptism. And here we go deeper into the new life that comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ, and the new life that comes through initiation into the body of Christ. Here is yet another example of koinonia, the fellowship that comes when we open the Word together, when we pray together, and when one believer encourages another to go deeper, in this case, beneath the water of baptism, and find new life. And as usual, it is St. Paul who will help us to put this story into context. He wrote, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have new life. If we've been united with him in his death, we will certainly be united with him in his resurrection." For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. That's from Romans 6. The sacrament of baptism and the new life we mark through the ritual also marks the death of our former life. We die to self when we go beneath the surface and we emerge a new person in Christ. Now, we don't have any details about the life of this high official in the royal government of Ethiopia, but if you watch House of Cards or any one of dozens of political dramas, you know that the life of someone in government requires compromise often beginning with the values that the individual first brought to the task. Even the passage that the eunuch is stuck on suggests the journey of someone who tries to serve politicians. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice." Uh, We'll hear more next time about wholeness and liberation in pastoral care, but Philip's gift to this man seems clear. I hope this episode has given you a little context to this idea of pastoral care. Next time, as promised, we'll look at models of pastoral care, some of the theory that supports this vital ministry. Thank you for joining me.